All right, let's pray and go before the Lord as we prepare. Father, thank you so much for your word. I do thank you for today. Um, I thank you for the chance that we'll have this afternoon to gather and to celebrate the new life that you give us through your son as we celebrate baptism. And I thank you for those who are taking that step and who are demonstrating their allegiance to you in that way. And we do thank you for the chance to gather um, for the picnic and to enjoy that fellowship as we, as we all come together. But Father, before we do all of that, we do thank you for the chance to open your word. And Lord, it is with um, just uh, solemnity that we look at this passage this week um, as we deal with, with things that are difficult and as we look square in the face of your justice and your wrath And yet, as we do that, we see your provision for your people and the salvation that you provide through faith. And so, Lord, we ask for your help as we look at this passage. We pray that these familiar words would um, become new and fresh as we look at them, and that we would understand them in the light of your revelation of Jesus through your Son, um, and that they would confirm the truths that we know in us about our own salvation. And so, we just give you the praise and the glory for all of that. So we commit this time to you and pray that you would be honored and glorified through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, much of the information and the knowledge that we have about the Jewish Holocaust, we have thanks to one pivotal decision that General Dwight Eisenhower made during the war. Now, up to the point in the war that we're talking about, People knew that the Nazis were anti-Semitic. They knew that Jews were being persecuted and difficult things were happening to them. But we were ignorant of the extent or the length of that persecution had gone to. Rumors were swirling about possible death camps and mass executions and gassings and things of that nature, but there had been no way to validate or to confirm that those things were happening. And so as the Allied armies marched across Europe, and freed nations along the way, eventually we began to see these concentration camps. And so the first that were freed were in the east, and the Russians freed those first. The first camp that the Americans freed was called Ordruf, and that camp was a sub-camp of the much larger camp of the Buchenwald camps in central Germany. And so uh, when the 4th Armored Division freed that camp, they immediately knew that there was something here that required a general to see. And so a few days after that camp was freed, General Dwight Eisenhower, Omar Bradley, and General Patton all toured that camp. And here is what Eisenhower wrote after witnessing that camp. The things that I saw beggar description. The visual evidence and the verbal testimony of starvation, cruelty, and bestiality were so overpowering as to leave me a bit sick. Remember, this is a man who has walked through combat, and the things he saw made him feel a bit sick. I made this visit deliberately in order to be in a position to give firsthand evidence of these things if ever in the future there develops a tendency to charge these allegations merely as, quote, propaganda. And so after he had toured the camp and had witnessed these things and wrote those things, he then sent a telegram back to the United States, and he urged General George Marshall 
to send journalists and congressmen from America to Europe to witness these camps themselves. And it is that choice that has given us so much of the information and knowledge that we now have about the Holocaust. Now, we have to understand the context in which Eisenhower made that decision, right? He wasn't just a general. He was a general over the entire Allied forces. He was orchestrating not just the American army, but different nationalities of armies. And yet, with all of that administrative and tactical weight on his shoulders, he understood the significance of what he saw and took the time to make sure that those facts were recorded for posterity. And so now, because of that choice, everywhere you go, or almost everywhere you go, you can see memorials and museums to those who lost their lives during the Holocaust. And so the things that happened there are remembered. Now, his words about this being viewed as merely propaganda are strangely and uh, maybe disturbingly prophetic. Um, There is a current trend, especially among young people, to view what happened at the Holocaust as as a myth, as not true. And so I'm grateful that we can quickly dismiss those claims because of the overwhelming facts and information that have been preserved about what happened um, to those people. But all of that shows the need that we have to remember things, the need that we have as a people to enshrine things in our memory. We are quick to forget, aren't we? The things that we don't intentionally remember become forgotten very quickly. As we distance ourselves from experiences or as eyewitnesses die off who saw something, it is very quick for us to move on and to forget what we saw, even with our own eyes. And it is that truth that Moses responds to in our passage this morning. The Lord recognizes that it's very easy, it will be very easy for the people of Israel to forget what happened to them during the Exodus, to forget the God that they saw and his character qualities which were on display. And so as a result, he provides for the people things to help them remember. And so what we see in our passage, and and our passage is rather circular, it doesn't move in a linear fashion, and so as we read through it, we'll be covering a lot of the same things over and over again as Moses is a bit repetitive as he talks about these things. But we're going to see the need to remember, and so the command to remember what has happened, but we're also going to see what to remember, that it's not enough just to remember, but it's also important that we remember the right things about what they've gone through. And then the last thing we'll see is the result of remembering. What does that look like in the life of a believer for those who remember what God has done? And so as we move through the passage, we'll be seeing those three things um, described. But the key of everything that Moses talks about here, the reason he wants the people to remember, is because he wants them to remember that it is the Lord who brought them out of Egypt. It is the Lord who accomplished their redemption. In hindsight, it's easy for the people of Israel to take credit for everything that they received. Moses, or later on, we even see that talked about to Joshua, that it's easy to think that this land that was given to you, where you didn't have to plant the trees and you didn't have to plant the crops, you take credit for those things, when in reality, those were all a gift from, from the Lord. And so Moses' point in this whole passage is really to just get across one thing. And that thing he wants the people to remember is that the Lord is the one who saved you. 
The Lord is the one who accomplished this exodus. The Lord is the one who brought you out of Egypt. Now, that stands in contrast to how most ancient cultures functioned or pagan rulers would have functioned. Any of you who are familiar with archaeology or ancient history know that we have found many monuments and memorials to remember key events, to remember key battles or campaigns or things like that. And so kings and rulers would set up these monuments to record for their people truths about what happened in this campaign. But who is always at the center of those monuments? Who is always the hero of those accounts? It's always the king. It's always a man. There's a humanistic focus to those memorials and to those memories that these cultures are trying to encapsulate. And so what Moses does for the people of Israel stands in stark contrast to what the rest of the cultures were doing during that time. Moses doesn't want them to remember a man or a people He wants them to remember their God and that it is the Lord who has accomplished their redemption and has brought them out of Egypt and has given them this freedom and this exodus. So with that, we pick up in verse 14, chapter 12, verse 14, and we'll read through verse 20. Now this day shall be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, but on the first day you shall remove dough with yeast from your houses. For whoever eats anything with yeast from the first day until the seventh, that person shall be cut off from Israel. And on the first day you shall have a holy assembly and another holy assembly on the seventh day. No work at all shall be done on them except what is to be eaten by every person that you alone may be prepared by you. You shall also keep the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your multitude out of the land of Egypt, and therefore you shall keep this day throughout your generations as a permanent ordinance. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days there shall be no dough with yeast found in your houses. For whoever eats anything with yeast, that person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel." Whether he is a stranger or a native of the land, you shall not eat anything with yeast in all your dwellings, and you shall eat unleavened bread. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread is a continuation of the Passover celebration. The meal that we talked about last week, where the lamb is slaughtered, unleavened bread is eaten, and bitter herbs are consumed, was accomplished on the 14th day of the month, the evening of the 14th day. The 15th day through the 21st day is then what is called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So it was a continuation of what was celebrated during the Passover. And so throughout Scripture, those two things are used interchangeably. Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread are seen as one celebration as we move through Scripture. But what is the point with unleavened bread? Why is that such a big deal in Moses' mind, in the Lord's mind, and for the people? Well, leavened bread in ancient times was bread with yeast. It was bread that had the ability to rise, and so therefore it tasted better, um, and it was more filling. Uh, Unleavened bread is just a cracker. It's water and flour mixed together, mashed up, and then baked. And so our communion uh, bread is meant to replicate that unleavened bread. It's merely a cracker. Now, uh, the Israelites didn't have yeast. They didn't have that sort of ingredient the way we do. So their leaven 
was to pinch off a piece of the batch of dough they were working with and allow that to sour. And then in the next batch they were making, they would mix in that, um, that piece of dough and that would leaven the rest of the loaf and then they would pull off another piece and keep things going that way. So what does that sound like? It's basically sourdough. Who knew Exodus was so trendy, right? Yeah, all you internet people following sourdough, you can just go to Exodus and it'll tell you how to do that. So they were just making sourdough. But the point with the unleavened bread is that it was a key part of the Exodus meal, and it was a key part of their leaving the nation of Egypt. If you jump ahead um, to verse 39, we'll read some of the significance to the unleavened bread. So verse, chapter 12, verse 39, and they baked... Now, this is actually describing what the people did. This is describing the actual exodus. And they baked the dough, which they had brought out of Egypt, into cakes of unleavened bread, for it had no yeast since they were driven out of Egypt, and they could not delay, nor had they prepared any provisions for them. So notice that the unleavened bread was something they grabbed on the fly. It was something quick that they needed to do. They didn't have time to pack up and to gather a square meal or normal food or all of their supplies. They just had to grab their dough and run. And so as they ate the unleavened bread, it was a reminder that that was how they left Egypt. And so the point with that is if if you and I were planning an exodus... If you and I were planning to leave Egypt, move to a different country thousands of miles away, and never return, how long do you think it would take us to prepare? Years, right? Years, months, weeks at least. It would take lots of time to get all of our things together and to prepare and to be ready to move. But when the Lord moves the people, it is instantaneous. It happens in the blink of an eye. And so the point with eating the unleavened bread is to remind them, this didn't happen because of your planning or your packing or your preparation. This didn't happen because of wise planning on your part or the skill that you had. Your exodus and deliverance happened because the Lord delivered you. The Lord was the one who freed you. And so as they ate that unleavened bread, it was to remind them of what that process was like and how they fled in the blink of an eye to escape the people of Egypt. Not because it was their power or their ability, but because it was on the timing of the Lord, when the Lord said it was time to go. We see this emphasized in a couple of other ways throughout the description as well. Notice verse 15, For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, but on the first day you shall remove dough with yeast from your houses, and whoever eats anything with yeast from the first day till the last day will be cut off from Israel. But on that first day you shall have a holy assembly, and another holy assembly on the seventh day, and no work shall be done on them except what must be eaten by every person, that you alone may be prepared by you. So what does that sound like? The first day and the last day of this feast, no work is to be done. Sounds like the Sabbath, right? There's a Sabbath rest incorporated into the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The first day is to be a Sabbath where no work is to be done, and the seventh day is to be a, sab- a Sabbath where no work is to be done. Now, the principle of Sabbath throughout Scripture is to communicate to the people that it is not their ability that saves them. 
You can work six days of the week, but that seventh day you give to the Lord. And you can trust that the Lord will provide for you on that seventh day. He will make up enough of the work during the week to provide for you on that seventh day. It wasn't just during the week, but then there was a year of Sabbath rest where you trusted the Lord to provide a bountiful year before that Sabbath year so that you could rest from your labors. And so the point of a Sabbath rest is to communicate this isn't your work that is accomplishing these things. It's not your ability or your skill that is accomplishing these things. And so if we think about that in terms of the Exodus, that's exactly what Moses is teaching the people. It is not your skill or your ability that brought you out of Egypt. All of this was accomplished by the Lord for your behalf. Now, just in case you think I'm a broken record, we're going to hit that again. Verse 17, And you shall keep the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your multitudes out of the land of Egypt. Now, here's where we start to see this principle, that it's not, in, it's not only important that the people remember what happened, but that it is a specific thing they are asked to remember. They're not just to remember the Exodus. They're to remember specific things about the Exodus. Now, any of you who are married know exactly what this is like. The same event can happen, and a husband and a wife can both experience it, And they have completely different memories about how that event goes, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we can go on a date and we can go out to a restaurant and have a nice meal. And my memory of that event can be very positive because the steak that I had was really good. Well, my wife can have the exact same experience and her memory of that is very negative because the bathroom smelled, right? So just because you remember the same event doesn't mean you remember the right details about that event. And so the Lord wants to make sure that the people remember the right thing about the Exodus. And notice what, he is, what it is that he wants them to remember. For on this very day, I brought your multitudes out of the land of Egypt. It's no more complicated than that. It's a very simple statement and simple phrase. But if you look at the history of Israel, it was one that they were prone to forget. It is the Lord who brought them out of Egypt. It is the Lord who accomplished their deliverance. It doesn't say, I want you to remember that by your cleverness, you tricked the Egyptians and escaped from Egypt. It doesn't say, by your strength and your military ability, you escaped from Egypt. No, It says, I, the Lord, brought you out of Egypt. Your skill and your ability did not accomplish your exodus. It was me and me alone as your God who accomplished your salvation and who brought you out of Egypt. That is what Moses wants the people to remember when they celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. I brought you out of Egypt. Now, this whole description about the Feast of Unleavened Bread is really for future generations. This isn't something that the people are currently celebrating because they're experiencing this. They are experiencing the exodus as they speak. So Moses includes this here as future remembrance for the people. This is what you should do in the future. So after this description of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, he returns then to what is currently happening um, in Exodus at this moment. 
So pick up with me with verse 21, and we'll read through verse 27. So then Moses called for all of the elders of Israel, and he said to them, Go and take for yourselves lambs according to your families, and slaughter the Passover lamb. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop, and dip it in the blood which is in the basin, and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel and the two doorposts, and none of you shall go outside of his house until morning. Verse 23, For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. But when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses and to strike you. And you shall keep this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever. And when you enter the land which the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this right. And when your children say to you, what does this right mean to you? Then you shall say, it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord, because he has passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but he spared our homes. And then the people bowed low, and they worshipped. So we return to the events that are happening in Exodus and we see the, the playing out of everything that was commanded earlier in chapter 12. So the lamb is taken, the lamb is slaughtered, the blood is spread on the doorposts, and that accomplishes the deliverance and the, and the salvation of God's people. But just in case you missed it, which I know you're all sick of hearing this now, but just in case you missed it, who is it that prevents the destroyer from entering the houses of the Israelites? Is it the Israelites' strength and their ability, their wisdom and their smarts that saves their children? No. Who prevents the destroyer from entering their houses? It is God. God is the one who prevents the destroyer from entering their homes to take the lives of their children. And by extension, it is God who allows the destroyer to take the lives of the Egyptian children. And so, we see the ultimate display of God's power. Everything has been building in this book to this point. The ultimate display of God's power is in his ability to create life on one hand and to take life on the other. The most powerful being in the universe is the being who can create life or preserve life or who can take life. If there is a being who can do that, there is no one who can challenge his power or his ability. He is far above any power or any strength that is in the world. He, by definition, must be the most powerful being in the world. And that is the picture we see of our God put on display in this passage. He is the most powerful being in the world. Not Pharaoh, not the pantheon of Egyptian gods, but Yahweh presents himself as the most powerful being in the world. And the way that he preserves his people is through an act of faith. We'll talk about this more at the end, but the, the act of putting blood on the doorpost was an act that was motivated by faith. You believed that this would save you, and therefore this act was salvific. You did it before the Lord came, and therefore your faith is what saved you. But we also notice that accompanying this whole practice, there is a pedagogic aspect to it. You are supposed to, as you do this, teach your children about what is happening. When you enter the land which the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this right. 
And when your children say to you, what does this right mean to you? Then you shall say, it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord because he passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but he spared our homes. And so this is where we get our application or our results of remembering. If you are remembering the Lord as you should, if you are remembering what he has accomplished for you in redemption, if you are conscious of the fact that it is the Lord who has saved you and not yourself, what fruit should you see in your life? Well, you should be talking about it with other people. If you're remembering what God has done for you, if you are conscious of the redemption that you have experienced, then you can't help but tell other people what God has done for you. And so are you talking to your children, parents, are you talking to your children about the beauty of God's redemption? Do they know the purpose and the meaning that your life has because of what Christ has purchased for you? If you're single, are you talking to your friends and your family about God's redemption and the work that he has accomplished in your life? Is that something that just bleeds out of you because it is something you think about all day long? And if you're married, is this something you and your spouse talk about? Will you talk about the redemption that you enjoy and the salvation that you have because of the Lord? If you are remembering God's redemption as you should, then you will talk about it with other people. That's the first result of remembering the redemption that God brings us. The second is at the end of that verse, verse 27. And the people bowed low and they worshiped. Now, why would the people bow low and worship when they recognize or are aware of the redemption that God has brought about for them? It's because the gospel, the truth that an omnipotent, all-powerful God, the most powerful being in the world, by the way, has chosen you to experience salvation, not because of your own works or not because of your own abilities, but simply because of His love for you, When you recognize that that is what is true of you, the fruit that you have in your life is the fruit of humility. The gospel always accomplishes humility in believers. Those who think about the gospel correctly and who remember correctly the truths of the gospel will be marked with real humility. Those who bow low and worship. So, If you remember the Lord as you should, if you are conscious of his redemption that he has brought about in your life, you'll talk about it with other people. And if you're aware of the Lord's redemption in your life and you're conscious of it, you will bow low and worship him in humility. Those are the fruits that we see from rightly remembering what God has accomplished for us through redemption. Now, this phrase to bow low and worship is important because this is the second time that we've seen it in the book of Exodus. Earlier in the book, when Moses and Aaron in chapter 4 come down out of the mountain and they first come to the people of Israel, and they say, we have come from the Lord and we are here to save you. The Lord has heard your cries. He has heard your requests and he has answered them by coming to you. The people bowed low and they worshiped. But then what happened immediately in chapter 5? Remember, chapter 5 is where the straw gets removed. And they now have to make the same quota of bricks, but it's twice as hard. And so immediately the people question what God is doing. And that initial humility and worship is replaced with anger and distrust for what God is doing. 
So what has changed to bring the people back to a position of humility and worship? What's changed is the ten plagues. They've seen the incredible power and wonder and majesty of their God on display. And what they have seen has convinced them anew that their God is for them. And he is working to accomplish their redemption and their salvation. And so they bow low and they worship. But of course, we know this is a cautionary tale as well. Because in just a matter of verses, the people question whether God will deliver them. They were so confident of his redemption here. And in just a couple of days, they will question whether he will save them again. And so the goal for us, as we remember God's redemption and the work that he has accomplished in our lives is to continue to be faithful to him, to trust him, to accomplish anew the redemption that he has promised today as he did in the past, and for that faithfulness to be a mark in our lives. So we continue in verse 29. Now it came about at midnight that the Lord struck all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the cattle. And Pharaoh got up in the night, and he and his servants and all of the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was no home where there was not someone dead. And then he called for Moses and Aaron at night and said, Rise up, get up from among my people, both of you, And the sons of Israel, and go worship the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and go and bless me. And so, after all of this description and all of this uh, tension building in the passage, we see God's judgment on the nation of Egypt. And God takes the firstborn of every home of the Egyptians. And so, Pharaoh changes his heart. He doesn't grudgingly let the people go, but he drives them out. He wants them all to go to get rid of them as quickly as possible, but he asks Moses to bless him. Now, that may seem like an odd request, but it's incredibly important that it's included here. Because when Pharaoh approached Jacob hundreds of years before, Pharaoh asked Jacob to bless him because he recognized in Jacob a superior person, someone whose authority superseded his own. And as we've seen this colossal battle between Pharaoh's authority and Yahweh's authority, here we finally see Pharaoh recognizing the truth. Yahweh is the supreme authority. And Pharaoh's request for Moses to bless him indicates that he views God as the superior being. And he is seeking a blessing from the Lord rather than exerting his own authority and power. Now, uh, verses 33 and and on is is a bit of a repetition. It's things that we've talked about before. So we're going to jump down to verse 41, and we'll finish out the chapter here. And at the end of 430 years, on this very day, all the multitudes of the Lord departed from the land of Egypt. Now, it is a night to be observed for the Lord, for having brought them out of the land of Egypt, this night is for the Lord to be observed by all of the sons of Israel throughout their generations. And the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner is to eat it. But as for every slave that someone has purchased with money, after you have circumcised him, then he may eat of it. A stranger or a hired worker shall not eat it. It is to be eaten in a single house, and you are not to bring any of the meat outside of the house, nor are you to break any bone of it. 
All the congregation of Israel are to celebrate this. But if a stranger resides with you and celebrates the Passover to the Lord, all of his males are to be circumcised, and then he shall come near to celebrate it, and he shall be like a native of the land. But no uncircumcised male may eat it. The same law shall apply to the native as to the stranger who resides among you. And then all the sons of Israel did so, and they did just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt according to their multitudes. So just as the Lord is the one who has saved the people, the Lord is the one who has accomplished their exodus, this passage reveals the way in which he accomplishes their salvation. He accomplishes it through faith. It is not through a work. It is not through an action, but it is through the faith that you place in your God. We saw this earlier in the passage where those who ate leaven during the Feast of Unleavened Bread were cut off. Now, that may sound like a works-based salvation. If you don't follow the rules, you don't get saved. Okay, that may sound like work-based salvation, but that's not at all what Moses is painting a picture of here. There is faith in what God has asked them to do. I believe that if I am circumcised, that makes me a part of God's family. And I believe that because of the word that God has said. I believe that if I don't eat leaven during this time, I experience God's favor. And so at the root of, those, of that obedience is faith. It is belief in what God has said and belief that he will save us if we walk in obedience to what he has done. And so the foundation of their salvation, the foundation of their exodus is faith. It is belief in God and in what he has said and following that in obedience. There is no other way in which you can be saved. If you eat leaven and you disobey the Lord during that time, you will not experience his salvation. You're cut off from Israel. If you are uncircumcised, you cannot take part in the Passover meal. And so we see that there is one way to experience that salvation. That salvation is through the sacrifice that the Lord makes for the people. And so as we think about all of this context, what's the application or what does that look like in our own lives? Well, I've hinted at it all the way through, but just as we see the need for the people of Israel to remember that it is the Lord who has saved them, we have the same need to remember it is the Lord who has saved us. The exodus that the people of Israel experienced was an exodus out of bondage and slavery and freedom from Egypt. But you and I have, it, have experienced an exodus that is no less in its degree. We've experienced an exodus of freedom from the bondage of sin and death, and we have been given a new life. And I think it's wonderful that we're celebrating baptism today because Paul tells us in Romans 6 that that's what baptism symbolizes. The reason that believers get baptized is because it's a picture of what happens at salvation. When you're baptized, you are buried in the water, and that's a symbol of the death that you have died to sin. But you don't stay dead. You're raised up to walk in that new life that Christ has given you. And so as believers, we come together to remember that that is what is true of us. We have experienced that salvation and that exodus. Same thing is true when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We come together on a monthly basis to regularly remember 
that Jesus broke his body for us, that he shed his blood for us. And what is absent from that memory? What is absent is any appreciation of my works or what I bring to the gospel table. It is totally a focus on what the Lord accomplishes for his people and our union with him through that. So as we think about Israel remembering their exodus, it is important that we remember the gospel, that we preach to ourselves every day what is true about the gospel, that we were unworthy sinners who Jesus died in order to redeem. And there is nothing that we can do to earn that salvation. It is purely a gift of his grace. And then as we think about the fruit that that remembrance brings in our lives, remember that the mark of the gospel is always humility. And so as we seek to walk with the Lord and we seek to remember aright the truths of the gospel, we should always see that marked by humility in our own lives and our relationships with other people. So let's close in prayer, um, and then we'll pick up with our worship. Father, thank you so much for this time and this passage, and we are grateful for the exodus that you have accomplished, not just for the people of Israel, but also for us. Thank you for the picture that this exodus is of the freedom you have given us from sin and from death. And Father, we confess that that is not because of anything we have done. We are not worthy of your salvation or of the gospel that you have given to us. There is nothing in us um, that forces you to accomplish that. It is purely a gift of your grace because of your love and your kindness to us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to uh, be grateful for that and to recognize in humility that you have provided that for us. And so we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.